Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I am just like anyone else. I need love and water, and I don't really consider myself a superstar. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, every day between now and July 13th is now my enemy. Want to know why? <laughs> Hold on, let me guess. Uh, July 13th. Every you, single day between now Every day now. between now and July 13th is your enemy because you are being sued for sexual harassment, and that's your court date. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really looking forward to that court (laughs) No. You just want to get it over with. Just plead guilty and move on with your life. I want to see, Uh, like, there's been all this fuss about Title IX. I want to see um, how that really works. No, I am not, and for those first-time listeners, I am not being sued for for sexual sexual harassment. harassment. However... You just give hush money to everybody. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of hush money to give right now. The hush money fund. <laughs> Please support the podcast so that I... your wife has like a jar in the kitchen, and your daughter asks, "Like, well, what's all this money going to?" And she's like, "You'll know when you're older." Again, okay. I... <laughs> this is going to be a rough episode for Pizarro, I think. It is. Uh... I'm sick and I'm running a fever, but so that take that with a grain of salt. So go on. <laughs> Every day between now and July 13th is my enemy because that's the day that season two of Mr. Robot premieres. Season two of Mr. Robot. Bunch of people have uh, brought that to my attention or our attention on Facebook and uh, Twitter. And yeah. You know what? Um, So some people hate Mr. Robot and they've let us know. Nobody's been mean about it. But we got one request to do a podcast for every Mr. Robot episode. And I thought to myself, that would just be the end of my productivity. I mean, this is already bad enough, but I, the, the sad thing is that I pondered it for a second. Not for I, a, long, I a long second. Because <laughs> my pro- let's just be honest, our productivity is, is, is already dead in the <laughs> You know, I, I'm proud of my productivity. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I just maybe have lower standards than you. Uh, no, um, I mean, I have... Uh, <laughs> Uh, like, like I have a bunch of things coming out, including Very Bad Wizard Part 2, forward by Dave Pizarro. Very lovely forward. Um, just Do you think very, we can get like, what... made brought a tear to my stone face. Um, to, a crack to your stone heart. <laughs> yes. Uh, 
Yeah, no, I, that was fun to write. And um, I, I really would like to get what's his name to do a dramatic reading of it. Um, I, who, remember the what's, his what's, name? what's the name of the actor who did the dramatic reading of the sorority letter? Um, the guy from Boardwalk Empire. Oh, the yeah. great actor, Mike, Michael. If you're reading this right now, saying to yourself, OMG, Becca, I've been having so much fun with my sisters this week. Then punch yourself in the face. God. You have a good memory right now. You're pretty alert. <laughs> For someone who's sick, you're pretty alert. Drugs are bad. Um, so let's talk about philosophy. All right. Uh, actually, I want to say one more thing about Mr. Robot. So wife of a colleague watched Mr. Robot the whole season, Steph Coates, and then listened to our podcast on it, had nothing but praise and... I don't know, uh, somewhere between just praise and awe for my predictions. That's because when you predict every conceivable outcome, <laughs> chances are you're going to be right. <laughs> I don't know, Steph Coates, but um, I'm glad that she made you feel better about your, my Mr. your Robot marijuana-fueled ra- ravings. <laughs> so okay. today we're going to respond to more listener email like some we've gotten some really interesting and thought-provoking emails um a couple things on facebook that that might come up we actually don't know each of us chose a few things we wanted to respond to and i don't know what david chose and i don't think he knows what i chose so that's what we're going to do in the second segment first segment speaking of justin Coates, he likes to send me things um Philosophy things that he knows will infuriate me um, <laughs> just because he likes to see me like stomping around the department. It's a it's a review of a book by S. Matthew Lau, who, you, you know, right? Yeah, Matt Lau. He's a, he's a good guy. Good guy. Um, wrote a book called The Right to be Loved. The review is by George Rainbolt. Um, at, who is a philosopher at Georgia State University. Now, when I first read this, as <laughs> Justin pro- predicted, I thought this is everything that's wrong with philosophy distilled in a, to a single review. Now, I mean, it's the reviewer is just taking the book on its own terms. So... I'm sure Matt Lau is is a nice guy. You right. seem... he's a philosopher at NYU. Um, he does ethics. He's at NYU. Yeah, he's a philosopher. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't. I uh, obviously not read the book. I like to think the book is maybe better than the review of the. Ben. I don't see it, how is... that would be possible. <laughs> because the, the 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 problem with the review is that it actually reckons with the book. As though it were not horribly misconceived, and so here, let, just let's just get into <laughs> yeah. it. So here's the opening paragraph in this admirable book. S. Matthew Lau argues that children have a human right to be loved. With satisfyingly clear prose, he considers the main obstacles. That's good. That satisfyingly clear the prose. <laughs> he considers the main obstacles in the path to this conclusion and lays out an interesting and credible case. Although his book did not convince me that children have a right to be loved, it's a worthy contribution to a vital debate. 
The vital debate is whether or not children have a right to be loved. I, okay, and I want, so, but before we get into it, before, I want just listeners to take a second, hit pause or whatever, and just think <laughs> about that. Just, just the idea of a debate, a vital debate over whether children have a human right to be loved. That, I, like, just, just that. Like, we could end the segment right here. We'll be right back. <laughs> no okay so so before you get into that yes i just the first two sentences already are what i meant when i say i i trust that the book is better than the review this sounds like a book report written by a freshman in high school no <laughs> with satisfyingly clear prose but what is your so are you just assuming that children do have a right to be loved? Is that why you think it's... Yes, that's what I'm assuming. <laughs> I'm assuming that the concept of a right to be loved is not something <laughs> that could only be dreamt up by philosophers who have completely detached themselves from reality right. and any connection to real human emotions. <laughs> and I'm assuming that, yeah, of course, that it's, well, you know, it's, there's a Kantian right to be loved that children share in, in virtue of, um, or quay. There's the, a lot of quas or quays, however the fuck you pronounce it. Yeah, however the fuck you pronounce quay, qua. <laughs> the review praises or at least tackles Lau's analysis and I've come around to certain parts of the review because I talked to a colleague, Eddie Namias, who <laughs> oh, defended him. And really? First, he did. Oh, I, I really want to hear this. Yeah. Well, we'll get there. Just pick out some sentences. So he's talking about, like, what makes children be rights holders. The reviewer picks up some possible counterexamples to Lau's view. Suppose that infant A and infant B are both the offspring of human parents. One week after birth, both have no mental states and no reasonable prospect for attaining moral agency. Infant A has perfectly normal human genes. The lack of mental state is due to events that occurred in the middle of pregnancy. Infant B has severe genetic issues that originated prior to conception and made it physically impossible for this infant to have mental states. On Lau's view, infant A is a right holder. Infant B may or may not be a right holder, depending on whether there are sufficient conditions for being a right holder other than having the genetic basis for moral and, uh, agency. Some will think that if the current mental states of the two infants are the same, then they must have the same capacity for rights and have these same capacities for the same reasons. Like this is what – so I, I actually read that paragraph to my, to my friend, to Eddie, when we were talking about it. And he says, what? I think that's a pretty good counterexample. And he was like, so I don't totally see what your problem with it. He's criticizing <laughs> this book. Like he, he said, if you have a problem, it should be with the book, with the author of the book. And, and – so I had to explain that my problem with it is that you tackle it on its terms, in which case the reviewer – like this is, this is not the only complaint you can make about the review. But the, I, for me, the central complaint is that you are enabling this kind of <laughs> philosophy. You are an enabler. You are like a codependent. So yeah, your problem is less with the book and the review as simply the, what, what it is a reflection of. That's right. And the I, endeavor. I think, yeah. Right. I, I, and I think that it, it's, a, it's ju just the idea that we're – that it would be a vital debate 
whether children have a right to be loved or not just shows a fundamental misunderstanding of what love is, what obligations or duties could could amount to. Just again, it's only like if you're completely disconnected and detached from actual human life and you are just swimming in this world of Rawls and Kant and abstract concepts, that's the only way that this could even get started. So let me let me d- defend this endeavor with one possible strategy of uh, of I, now just of to be defense. to be clear you're defending the the, the, the idea discussion. that we should have a debate over whether children have a right to no, be loved no over over whether or not there are uh, there are rights and then the discussion which which are those rights and who deserves them I think that your criticism about the the sort of ivory tower people who get into these discussions is missing a great like one of the big drivers for determining who has rights and what these rights are are people who are working to improve the life of people who are getting shit on all over the world and so the idea that there are fundamental rights that all all human beings have is actually used whether or not it's defensible in some you know, in some normative, logical, philosophical sense, it's used to motivate people who are trying to fight for basic human rights in areas of the world in which, you know, people don't have drinking water. Now, I have no problem with that. I have no problem with even the whole idea of human rights. I mean, I think, as you say, those when those are used for helping people who are oppressed and exploited around the world, that is a very good thing. And to have some sort of philosophical foundation for it, if you can do it, if you can show that they're not nonsense on stilts, as <laughs> called rights, then 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 that's great. Right. Uh, so I, what I, I don't I have... think there are are a bunch of children around the world who aren't loved, who their parents, if they're convinced by this argument, will now recognize that that the, that their child has a right to be loved and so start loving them. No, but you may be able to convince people that, um, say, children reared in orphanages with very little care um, and only their physical needs met. Maybe if you can convince people that, that children have a right to be loved, they deserve this, then people would actually get motivated to do so. Now, whether or not that's true and whether or not this well, would be the, the way to convince them. How empirically plausible do you think what you just said is? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, there are plenty of people who are convinced all of a sudden that people have a right to the Internet. And this, I believe, probably trickled down from sort of, you know, higher level discussions of what it means to have rights. And now it's just hit the grassroots and people are like, oh, you know, can you believe these people don't have bandwidth? Meanwhile, they're dying of dysentery. But um, <laughs> but we're putting we're giving them connect like uh, <laughs> What's his name? But, from but that makes is- more sense. A right to the Internet. I mean, it's probably ludicrous, the argument for it, but that makes more <laughs> that, that at least I can make sense of. Right. The, uh, the, uh, if you want to talk about kids in orphanages, right to be cared for, right to be nourished and fed and to be given an <laughs> education. That's fine. Yeah, maybe but that's you understand that the love. issue here is the idea of a right to be loved that uh, children would have. I, I think you just need a hug. I think you have a right to a hug. <laughs> Let's continue, though, because I'm with you on this. Re- this particular review is the one that actually just really digs into me. OK, why? You go and then I'll, I'll, I'll defend the review. How about that? <laughs> we'll sw- switch up on. So you're right that he is taking Matt Lau's arguments at face value and he's trying really hard. So I can see why that annoys you. And I could, I could totally get that 
this isn't going to convince anybody if they're not loving their You kids. know what the review of this book should have been? The Nina Strominger, Colin McGinn review. That's what it should have been. <laughs> what starts to get me is the, um, the autobiographical examples that he gives. So he says, uh, so this is, and this points to a more general problem that I think maybe Matt and, and this guy um, are just assuming that they can make empirical claims about human psychology without any without any actual evidence. Um, so Lau makes a convincing case that some emotions are to some degree under our control. However, he did not convince me that the particular emotion of being in love is under our control or that humans have the level of control of our feelings of love needed in order to have a duty to love. I was unable to love my sons until they were four or five months old. I felt horrible guilt about my inability to love or even like my infant sons. I tried all three of techniques suggested by Lau. They all failed. <laughs> I was able to love my sons only when their mental abilities increased. In at least two cases, I attempted to love a woman. In these cases, I also tried all three of the techniques suggested by Lau. I felt that I had extremely strong reasons to love these women, but I was unable to do so. Regarding my current wife, I had strong reasons not to love her. I sincerely felt that it would be better if I did not love her. I was unable to control my feelings of love. I... I <laughs> So, at first, when I read that, I thought what he was saying was that he has tried to love two women. And there's a sense in which I have tried to love two women, and it's just never worked out. Uh, yeah. The notion of love is underspecified in this. <laughs> yeah, we need some conceptual analysis. Sometimes. But this idea of being unable... So, I don't know, is, is this reflective or characteristic of philosophers... To a much larger degree than the rest of the human race. But this idea of being unable to love your sons until they were like your children, until they were four or five months old, feeling guilty about that and then trying certain like rationalist techniques. To try to, or I don't know if they're rational. That was my first thought was like, what, you're turning to Matt's book as like a self-help way of generating love. Well, no, I think he had already done it. Like he, he had read. Uh, he had already tried those techniques. He had already tried those. He had anticipated Matt Lau's <laughs> argument about how you can get yourself to I've to been doing your shit. Yeah. <laughs> Most fathers just naturally love their kids, right? Like. But I know I know what he means. If what you expect is this watershed moment when like the baby pops out that you're gonna like be in love with your baby, it it took me like a few weeks to feel that deep bond with my daughter. But that's why like the notion of love seems weird. It seems like a very specific, perhaps even very Western notion where I felt a sense of of I don't know, obligation to this thing that was mine. I just didn't have the bond. It took a while to have the bond, and I feel I felt like yeah. I was somehow expected to have that bond immediately. So okay, this is this that's this is good. I'm assuming that's the sort of the Kantian side of you that was unable to just connect with your child immediately, but because I did, like I was struck by that. I didn't expect to, and then I did. Like I thought, yeah. like because just seeing other my friends' little babies. And mm -hmm. all the people cooing over them and me thinking, eh, it just looks like every other baby. Like, call me when they can talk. 
<laughs> yeah, no, that's not what I. I mean, I, but I, but I, I mean, that's how yeah. I felt about them. And then all of a sudden, Eliza comes out, and I was just instantly attached. So maybe I that maybe I just got lucky there, and maybe. This is to me. It felt, it felt this like is what happened puppy. with Eddie. It's like you you start talking about it, and it's like, well, maybe this is an interesting like <laughs> idea. And I just uh, I, I have strong resistance to to that. What so? What is it that you're resisting? The 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 notion. So if the if it had been phrased completely differently, and it it, it said, um, do you think that um, that we ought to have a particular bond with infants, right? Without the word rights. I mean, what is it about this that so is particular? So if the question is specifically like, should you love your kids or should you do your, try your best to love your kids? Yeah. You know, I guess like I, I, kind of the obvious answer is yes, but, <laughs> right. uh, but the idea that we're, you're framing this as this theoretical top down, Human beings in virtue of let's Quah. let me just read this. Chapter two defends a four step account of human <laughs> rights. Human rights are rights to be to the fundamental conditions for pursuing a good life. A good life is one pursuing basic activities. Basic activities are activities that are important to human beings, qua human beings, life as a whole. Fundamental conditions are goods, capacities, and options that human beings, qua human beings, need in order to pursue basic activities. Next paragraph. To explicate the notion of qua, that's a, that's a, line, that's a line, right, in this review. <laughs> to explicate the notion of qua, Lau asserts that some things are important to people, qua individuals, while other things are important to people, qua human beings. So now you're talking about this very kind of personal, intimate, maybe like natural human problem, which is you feel this crushing like, Ah, I'm supposed to love this kid. This this kid is supposed to be like the most important thing in the world to me. And maybe some people don't feel that right away, and they feel guilty. But you're but you're talking about like human beings, quay human beings, life, and you like you you've completely removed like whatever is interesting about that issue is gone, and it's now put in this antiseptic, abstract, uh, uh, theoretical machinery that just sucks all the humanity out of it. Like that's 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 what's happening. Right. Are you saying this qua human being or qua Tam or something? <laughs> but what is funny is that I think that I think that the reviewer is trying to humanize this discussion by telling us about the two times he tried to love a woman. Also, I think that here's the other thing. Like he's obviously right. You know. You know. It's a. It's a. Uh, it's a little revealing what what he tells us. But the general idea behind that is right. It's like not up to us whether we love somebody or not and it's not something that can be framed in terms of like categorical imperatives and and rights like you can try your best you can try to put yourself in the situation Uh, one thing my colleague said to me is imagine you've started to fall out of love with your wife this idea of trying to love her more yeah wouldn't you try to love your wife more if you thought that she was or things like that? Like you might feel so, uh, you know, I, this is I, I think what what marital therapy does. There are probably strategies that you can use to to rekindle a bond and and but but they probably don't involve sort of basic justifications built from a simple notion of rights. And probably. Not. <laughs> 
ever been to couples therapy, but uh, they, they would give you homework. You know, go out on more dates, <laughs> have more oral sex. I don't know. I don't, Maybe um, the, so, the what's that thing? Fuck, I'm blanking on it. Having sex in all those weird positions. Oh, Kama Sutra. Kama Sutra. Does yeah. it, maybe it starts with like the Universal Declaration or something like that. <laughs> okay, but but it's because you know, as I looked up George Rainbolt's work, it's because he buys into the notion of doing you know this kind of analytical philosophy on the notion of rights because he's he's arguing from within. So of course you would write, but your review would just be really short and be like, "This is not what it takes to justify the the right to be loved." But he's arguing from within the set of assumptions. Right. Right. He's taking it seriously. And what's what this causes you humor that he's taking it seriously. It's like the people who think, you know, like, okay, I'm going to put this whole Gettier case or zombie thing to rest now. And then you (laughs) totally tackle it on its own terms. And it just needs to be just blown up from the like at the core. You need to get at the like pumping heart of it. You don't just like this is this is a counterexample. Infant A and infant B. And I think that's gonna that's gonna end this talk about rights to be loved. You didn't think of my infant A and infant B example, nor did he think of my criticisms of his explication of the notion of quay. This is why I do empirical science. And- replicable empirical science all right let's take a break and we'll be right back to discuss your emails and comments very bad wizards this is the time where we like to take a moment and say first of all thank you for all the support that you guys have shown us in fact the bulk of our discussion today is because of the feedback that we've gotten from you guys so please keep it up um you can contact us at very bad wizards at gmail.com you can tweet to us at very bad wizards at tamler at peas um you can go to our facebook page I believe it's facebook.com slash very bad wizards and leave us feedback there um, if you'd like to give us some tangible support, uh, you can, at one basic level, you can just rate us on iTunes. We've got, actually, we should pull up some of our, our more, more recent uh, iTunes reviews. That They always make our day. You guys are very kind. Um, or you can go to our support page, verybadwizards.com slash support. And there you can either donate to us directly via the PayPal button, or you can click on the Amazon link purchase whatever you would as usual you don't get charged anything extra but we get a small little piece of what you buy and that does help us quite a bit and we really as, love the amazon that's very really, 
That's it gives pro- us like it's windfall money too because we have to use it on Amazon. Yeah, you know exactly. <laughs> now yeah. you can afford toilet paper for your daughter and stuff. You know, it's true. I'm getting down. I'm getting down to that. Where that's, <laughs> that's a problem. Unless I get a new gift card. Uh, there's going to be no toilet paper in the Summers household we're gonna, again. We're going to do a Kickstarter for t- toilet paper for, <laughs> for my toilet paper. We're also going to get that shirt up. I think we've gotten so many requests for the one-star repugnant T-shirt, so we'll have that up and running very soon. Semester is coming to an end, so have some time. And um, I want to make it into a mug, too, like a coffee mug. Yeah, I think that would be a great mug. I think both, yeah. Thank you um, for in advance for buying that T-shirt. We will try our best to stay repugnant. I think we've been doing a good job so far. Yeah. Oh, and a Patreon account will be set up. So yes. help me. God. <laughs> so or the IRS <laughs> is going to storm my house, like, you know, you like go helicopters. To, and You can get some Al Capone jail time. Yeah. That's right. They've been looking for an excuse. <laughs> All right. So shall we get to some some of our favorite feedback? Yeah. So we'll just do a couple of quick questions first, and then we'll go to some of the more substantive questions that we've gotten. Yeah. Why don't you start? Yeah. So there's just a couple of quick ones that, that can be answered very easily. From Hans Hamlin. Hey, guys. Podcast is awesome. Huge movie TV nut, and you guys never fail to entertain. I was just wondering if you guys have ever watched Rick and Morty by Rick Ridley and Dan Harmon. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Rick and Morty is he a cartoon. Just waved his finger. In <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a cartoon. I've actually I, I used a quote from them in one of the little opening um, quotes before. It's brilliant. It It's uh, Dan Harmon, who was a, a creator of Community. Um, but it's the best sci-fi on TV right now. It's essentially, it takes like uh, the, the doc from Back to the Future and um, th- that template of the the young kid and the older scientist, and it makes just amazing TV. So watch it if you haven't. The other one I wanted to quickly mention is, and I think this is a good idea. We've gotten this from a couple of people. A quick request. You've lately been doing some podcasts where you discuss particularly impactful philosophy or psychology papers. I enjoy these episodes a lot, but feel that I would enjoy them even more if you would let us know the papers you'll be discussing on the podcast a week or so in advance. So I'll try to make an effort whenever we do decide on a paper to post it immediately. Um, it's Speaking a bit of, a of that, we have Jennifer Jack Quet coming mm-hmm. on the podcast next episode to talk about her book, Is Shame Necessary? And we will post That's in, good. Yeah. Um, something on her work or by her. I'm really looking forward to that. Yep. So that's it for me. Okay, the only quick question that I I get a lot of questions about whether, you know, they, they, people like philosophy, what book should they start with? And, you know, it's a hard it's actually a really hard question to answer because there's no single great book that just exposes you to the best of philosophy. Um, It it depends. You know, and some people are more interested in some of the, you know, metaphysical or eternal questions. Some people are more interested in the ethical questions. The one book, though, that I would recommend to any person who's thinking about getting involved with philosophy is Bertrand Russell's History of Western Philosophy. It's a kind of imposing book in that it's a big book, but it's really, really well written. He was a he was a fantastic writer, and he was and he was aware that he was writing this for a general audience. It really goes through all the major figures in Western philosophy, and 
places them in historical context, and it's just really well done. It was a book that I read um, and that got me sort of excited and maybe considering applying to a philosophy graduate program. So that's the one that I will – that's the one I can confidently recommend to anybody, to anybody who's interested in, in philosophy. Right. You know, I will say that that I remember being – feeling this way because I, I – there weren't a lot of philosophy courses in my university and I wanted to just start reading. And I, I don't know how good it is. It's in some ways, that's why this question is difficult because the kind of book that might've pulled you into philosophy may be a book that you no longer think is a very good one. Right. You know, one of the most formative books that I ever read was the denial of death by Ernest Becker. I think that if I were to read that now, I would, I would, just disagree with a lot of it. But at the time, it really motivated me to study psychology and, and sort of blended with philosophy. I read um, a book called The Story of Philosophy by Will Durant, who wrote this book in 1926, basically. It was like sort of goes through all of the so Aristotle, James, Nietzsche, Russell, Spencer, Locke, Plato. And, you know, it was a good intro to me to get the sort of landscape of, of philosophers. But um, I, you know, I, I, again, don't even know if it's any good. Did you see that uh, marijuana was um, voted as kosher for Passover? Ah, that's, thank yeah. God. We'll you put mean, a link to that. Yeah. I tweeted well, it. I tweeted back to the person who had, who had posted this and I said, does that mean you have to leave a doobie for Elijah? Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> I think that would be <laughs> just a fat joint next to the Manischewitz. So to some right. more substantive feedback, you want to, you want to start off? Yeah, well, I mean, you brought up, and I've never read that book, but what was the book the Book about death? Oh, yeah, The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. This is a question from, it's from David, from Auckland, from the University of Oh, yeah, Auckland. I had this one, too. You do? Oh, okay. yeah. You can hop on. <laughs> yeah. So he says that one focus of my work and passion is opening up the com- conversation about death and anxiety and he goes back to episode 10, um, where we talk about the meaning of life. And that's where I say that the fear of death is unrelatable. And he quotes he me. He quotes you, yeah. Yeah, I literally have never worried about that for a second in my life. Then he says, I've always been very skeptical about anyone who claims this, especially in this case in which Tamler heard Dave further clarified in terms of the primal realization of one's own fine finitude, finitude. 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 Not some event in the future that you dread coming to pass. Uh, We're talking about that dark, sweaty, laying in bed at night moment when you realize not what will happen, but what you are. A dying thing. Saying that this is not part of your human experience strains credulity, in my opinion, as I wouldn't consider it unreasonable to assert this realization to be a universal symptom of the human condition, a necessary condition, if you'd like, which (laughs) means Tamler is either being disingenuous or is, in fact, not human. And then he says... Uh, we'll either uncover a real human being or discover Tamler is a robot member of the Illuminati, a very bad Mr. Robot. Yeah. And um, he he challenges me to induce an existential crisis in you on air. Right. Luckily, I think I don't have to do that. You've been you've been through 
the fires of existential dread, and you're ready to report to us. Uh, to be honest, this just the way that he describes it is inducing a panic attack in me about my own death. So, so Wait, tell us. What, you th- you what, think it's the email that's doing that? But uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, no. So I've still never had that dark, sweaty, laying in bed. And, and, you know, a lot of this is tongue-in-cheek, I think, on the part of the emailer. But yeah. uh, I've still never had that dark, sweaty, laying in bed at night moment w- where I realized that I am a dying thing. But as people have been dying lately, just a little more aware of how strange that is that all of a sudden you can be there and not be there and it's over and i don't know like the 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 tipping point for me was gary shandling dying and then you know he's somebody that i loved and just grew up loving and you know the the larry sanders show so, was so 6 million jews wasn't enough for you you had to have like gary shandling i had to have that jew yeah <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know, but I think it's because you know. Also, I my my uh, mother in law died, and um, it was out of the blue. But a lot of these sort of out of the blue deaths, and just seeing the effect that it's that's had on people, and then you know, just sort of being aware more as I ride my bike to work or something like that, that all of a sudden it can just go bang. And of course, I've known that. It's not that I haven't known that I'm going to die. But for the first time ever, it's not a, well, yeah, obviously you're going to die. And you just like try to have a good run while you're here. Like what, like, what, right. like, what, what more is there to say? Like, did you not think you were going to die? Did you think you were just going to live forever? And it's weird. It's purely, it's, there's no argument here. There's no, there's no, the, there's no theoretical machinery. It's just all of a sudden I feel slightly differently about it. Like I'm actually thinking about that. And it's, um, or as you said to me on the phone, it freaks you the fuck out now. Yeah. Did I? I don't think I said that. <laughs> you don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think it does freak me the fuck out if I said it. Like I'm, that was probably like in a moment. But it, <laughs> like it, yeah, it's something that now I actually think about. So I, I don't know really how to phrase I, it any I, better. Yeah. I think that what this represents is, uh, you know, <clears throat> creatures all must die but it's not until their moment of death that they you know their survival instinct kicks in it's only humans who are able to reflect on the future who can experience this dread and anxiety and i think what this represents is finally at age whatever 58 that you are um you have moved (laughs) you've moved from being merely an unreflective creature um to finally i'm grasping exactly it's like the rouge test that they do in little kids to know, to, like to see at what age they recognize that it's the reflection in the mirror is them. You have finally passed the existential rouge test. You can grasp your own finitude. <laughs> yeah. My finitude. Yes. Um, I, I look, I, I still think I'm way far on the spectrum of not being bothered by death, but mm-hmm. I, I like uh, what he says. It's totally true that it's, it was unrelatable to me. Like I didn't right. get it. It was it was like, you know, people who are convinced by Parfit's super uh, future Tuesday example, and that makes them become like, you know, that makes them not be humans anymore. Like I can't relate to that person, 
And I couldn't relate to people like you who said that death was like this thing that inspired dread. And while I still don't – it doesn't inspire dread in me, I now get it. Like I can – I'm connected to that world. Well, I hope the death of Prince, which I must mention, shook you up in the same way. You know, it's it it did like I I actually loved Prince and I thought he and, and anybody he, who doesn't love Prince I don't I think that's yeah, one of the litmus tests. Like, who I've never heard anyone say Prince sucks. Right? No. Right. Yeah. If they, it's almost like they that would make them kind of interesting because I don't know anybody. <laughs> they're, they're touched. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's just that there have been a little, a few too many of these and a few too many Facebook posts about them that like you almost get jaded by the facebook posts to right. the point where it messes up with your own sentimental reaction to yeah. the thing but prince was somebody like jen and i my wife like we left college and we were like driving out to san francisco and we had a mixtape and it was like mostly prince his, i mean and he was awesome and i never there is, there's no time when it's when 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 it would be inappropriate to play a prince song not all of them, you know. You no. can't play Erotic City at a funeral, but you can play nothing. <laughs> sure, you can. <laughs> you can play nothing compares to you, right? It's, it's anyway. Um, I'm all glad right. that you have joined us in in at least having feelings. Maybe You're not now a robot. I'll love my. I'll, I'll learn how to love my child. <laughs> okay, I wanted to to talk about an email we got from Dan Miller, okay. and uh, one of the things, the bulk of his email is. It was really a, a, a suggestion for an episode topic, but um, it's something we've touched on before um, that I thought was interesting. So it says, should we consider how authors live their lives when evaluating their work? I suggest this in response to a recent news story that seems written specifically for Very Bad Wizards, the story of David Newman, one of medicine's brightest rising stars. Why Very Bad Wizards? Because it touches on all of your favorite topics, academics, morality, and cum. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I guess it leaves out movies. Maybe we can give a pass on that. So he then goes on to tell That's the enough. story. Yeah, it checks enough boxes. Dan Miller, who wrote, writes us, is a professor of emergency medicine, and he talks about this this sort of academic star in emergency medicine who made a whole bunch of contributions, um, empirical contributions, his critique of medical dogma and the pharmaceutical industry were articulate, incredibly well, incredibly well researched, and blistering. He also wrote a popular and insightful book on the decline of the doctor patient relationship. He was really changing medicine, probably for the better. Now he has been revealed to be a liar and a rapist who seemed to lack even a modicum of self-control. My intellectual inclination is to say that if he did the math right, then his conclusions still stand. However, most doctors aren't up to the task of checking his math. Also, the highly respected outlets he was heavily associated with have quietly but quickly disassociated themselves from him. So even these supposed paragons of evidence-based decision-making are not entirely sticking to the principle of judging work solely on its merits. So I I found this to be especially sort of relevant given a recent experience I'd had at a conference where somebody who's done in many ways respectable work started while under the influence of maybe a little bit too much alcohol, just revealing some ugly attitudes like like very racist and misogynistic attitudes. And I think that there is a general inclination to to just distance yourself from everything that they do, right? And and you can catch the intuition. We have probably a variety of sources for why this intuition exists, but at the very extreme you could say, well, this is why we don't use like the kind of Nazi doctor 
like research. Like we just sort of don't allow that into the canon of science. Um, and we don't care so much whether it was accurate or not. It's like, let's just find out on our own. Right. Then there are these murky cases where, and it might be domain specific where is it relevant say, so I don't think it's relevant if, you know, if, if Einstein was a child molester, E equals MC squared would not be discarded by anybody. Um, but because it's just true, but then, but not everything is that clear. So what is the proper stance to take? Do you, for instance, if Colin McGinn had ever written anything super insightful, would you stop assigning it in your class? Uh, I'd stop assigning the book on disgust. <laughs> should never have assigned that one in the first. I mean, look, I, with Colin McGinn, it's I, I kind of feel like he has gotten his due already and I wouldn't I mean I'd have to know what it was. The, right. I do think like you say it might be domain specific. This seems to me to be obviously domain specific and there's no general response that you can make. I think if you're talking about a physicist who's come up with a new theory and then it turns out that he was you know, whatever. He was anti-Semitic. He was um, right. racist. He was, I think if it's a real breakthrough, then you... Well, you I, can't you know, ignore it if it's true. Yeah. Like, if, if right. but, um, um, but like, if it's like, you know, going to see Bill Cosby now at a, sta- at a, at a club and just trying to appreciate the jokes as jokes, you know, the craft of humor. No, like that's, that that that's kind of fucked up right now he kind of fucked that up because it's it really does matter how connected the acts are to to what the person does and that's and, that's one thing that i find really fascinating because what is it that connects so now it's sort of ruined even like fat albert okay which is just a silly cartoon right <laughs> like um that's my <laughs> Did that need to be ruined did is how connected is it to bill cosby's character i don't know but it seems to have bill cosby's self in it in a way that has bill cosby's self has been tainted now if i were telling jokes though and cosby had written a really funny joke would i stop telling that joke probably not but but anything that has bill cosby's essence (laughs) confused in it it just seems tainted and that makes me really sad is this where the cum comes in (laughs) (laughs) oh bill cosby's cum um (laughs) get that drop uh i resent bill cosby but for you know for making it so that my he just ruined my childhood experiences of thursday night must see tv you know, I can't even watch a different we world. We didn't ruin them as you were a child. Like, how important no, no. You, are they to you now? My memories, they're all tainted. They're all tainted. Yeah. Everything I learned from the Cosby show must be false. <laughs> oh. I mean, you know, this stuff happens. Like, I, So to me, the, the biggest test case, the hardest test case is Roman Polanski. Yeah, but not Woody Allen. <laughs> not Woody Allen. Like, he had a consensual affair with somebody who he stayed with for the last, like, 25 years. I think that's fine. Roman Polanski did something, fled from it, fled from doing the serving the time for something that he was convicted of. And what he was convicted of involved like molesting a 13 year old and yet is, you know, one of the top five or 10 most talented filmmakers 
out there probably, or at least was at a certain point. It's interesting because how much do you take into account his his own past, right? The fact that wasn't he escaping like the Holocaust and then yeah, something and then like that. Also, yeah. like as a kid, and then he had his wife killed by the Manson family, and like this guy has been has been through a lot of shit, and so that that one is really difficult because. His personality, does, like the Bill Cosby example, does sort of come through his work, although not uh, not straightforwardly. Right. I don't know. I certainly have no problem seeing Chinatown. I mean, yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting because for much of Bill Cosby's work, you have to see Bill Cosby, right? And you don't have to see Roman Polanski, Um well, Obviously. there's one great scene in Chinatown where you do, but <laughs> oh, where you do, it's right. fine. Not... And so there, there seems to be that, you know, at a really gut level, like if I have to see your fucking face on TV, like I'm just going to be pissed at what you did. But... I'm torn about this. Like part of me thinks it's the art. It's not the person. It's not the artist. It's the art that you're judging and, you know, check your morality at the door. Yeah, I'm sympathetic I... to that, too. I, yeah, I Definitely. I mean, there's a case in which maybe you don't want to support financially yeah. um, an artist by, right? So that's that. Maybe this is when pirating shit is totally justifiable. So just torrent. That's your take home <laughs> message. Torrent Chinatown. That's the conclusion solved. Dilemma solved. Used. So I'm going to read a couple, uh, one representative comment, and this was coming from our Facebook page on our. Uh, discussion of guns and in particular the discussion of guns on Texas State University campus that's now going to be allowed and I was making fun of this just really embarrassing PowerPoint that our faculty senate put out about how to deal with it and how you should adjust your curriculum and not try to anger that student in quotes and then we just started talking more generally about what this is something where liberals just don't seem to be data-driven in their reactions. They don't look at the evidence of gun violence before getting outraged about particular law or a particular policy. Niels Holgerson, oh, holy crap, I started listening to the episode today, and for the first time since your early days, I had to stop. That's like of all the times. Uh, in the beginning, I thought you were just being sarcastic about allowing guns on campus, but you seem to be seriously not getting how fucked up, concealed, or any carrying of weapons, especially in educational institutions, those hallowed grounds, is. Murica all over the place. Murica. What's that? Murica. It's like what people say. Like, Murica. Uh, like America. Come on. Come on. Fuck this, fuck this guy already. Um, <laughs> no. I feel disappointed. We value his feedback. No. We've, and, and early listener, too. <laughs> um, I, I, I hate snobs about America and Texas, um, <laughs> especially when David calls you at, though. Yeah. Started calling for evidence that carrying guns would have any bad impact. How about simply looking at the rest of the civilized world, Dave? Yeah, why don't you try doing that? Somehow we manage not to get thousands and thousands killed by gun violence each year, 
but I guess me feeling disappointed how I would feel when hearing this BS from friends speaks for how much I like you guys and your podcast. See, In fact, guy. I will probably force myself to listen to the rest of the episode. This is, by the way, this follows the structure of a lot of emails that are yeah. really pissed off. At, <laughs> it's like they get really – I love this. I'm totally it's like – it's great. Like, And then they're like, but we, I still love you guys. And like that, that's – this is the structure – that we that that we love, and if we can't take shit from our listeners, then we sort of give up the right to uh, to dish out as much. <laughs> exactly. So I think this is a little system symptomatic of a confusion that we got from a lot of feedback on this, where we weren't saying that we're pro guns, pro NRA, pro right. no restrictions on guns in uh, in America in America. Um, we were saying that this particular law is not going to pose a threat to faculty. Uh, this is what I was saying. And the idea that you would adjust your curriculum or your office hours or anything because this law is going to come into effect is more irrational than people who deny like climate science, people who think that accepting Syrian refugees <laughs> is going to like bring down the downfall of America. It's just like where it's in the it's in that category of things where you're just you have no evidence to back up that view. And it's and and the fact that other countries have gun restriction laws and they don't have gun violence that has that has no bearing on this issue because the issue, the very specific issue, is whether this particular law of allowing licensed permit-carrying students to carry concealed carry guns in the classroom is going to pose a threat, a real threat, not a infinitesimal ne- negligible threat, but a real threat to the safety of professors in the classroom. Right. So your claim is is a disproportional react disproportionate reaction to. To what otherwise isn't – you're not saying it's a good idea to – No, I would vote carry. against it if you I vote against vote it, it. Yeah. all things being equal. And I think this is, this, is, this is on me for extending the conversation into a kind of tongue-in-cheek discussion about like, eh, we should just give everybody guns, which you know was my example of sort of t- taking an extreme to present the possibility that there are data out there showing that – having guns might actually prevent crimes from occurring. Now, I just wanted to point out that that's an empirical question. And right. and I think that this is sort of an example of our unwillingness to to look at the numbers about guns and gun control, um especially when we have knee-jerk reactions against it. It's illustrative that that in the email what's what's the name of the listener who wrote in? Niels Holgersen. <clears throat> Niels that that you didn't bother actually citing anything other than the rest of the world, right? Sort of pointing to the rest of the world. And, and I, I just want to just say, like, let's let's actually look at the data. It's hard data to come by. And I, I mean, I think that there is a misunderstanding of how much gun crime is caused by guns that are completely illegally owned, purchased, used. Right, it's, if you're going to come at us, come at us with, da- with data. Don't come at us with, well, the rest of the world doesn't seem to have as many gun killings. Right. And there are plenty of guns in other countries. I think I brought up the example of Switzerland where 
you know, every every adult male is part of the standing militia and they're required to have a gun in their home. So but their gun crimes are way down. So the story, it's just not as easy as saying, like, it might be a solution to eliminate all guns. It very well might be a solution to be super strict and eliminate all guns. But it's not as easy as saying that this is the only cause of gun violence in America. There's just endemic problems. But see, you're saying something different. Like, you're treating this as an issue about gun violence in America. I'm talking about a very specific issue of the risk the the professors run by um, from this new very specific law that allows 21-year-olds with a gun permit to carry concealed weapons. So you're now saying that because these students can now carry guns when they otherwise were— it was technically illegal, not that I check for guns when people enter the classroom (laughs) in the first place, that that poses a new threat. And that's the thing that I think is completely irrational. Last thing I'll say on this, the only way to stop a bad guy with the gun is a good guy with the gun. (laughs) It's actually not the last thing I want to say about it. So we got another email from Artem Kachnev. And I actually think here's where you see the moral problem with reacting like this. You read this article that Artem sent us about. Oh, yeah. About the woman. Yeah. The woman who refused to write a a letter of recommendation for a student who was a gun nut. Well, and, and by gun nut, she means that she had come back from winter break and said that she had fired a gun in a range and that it was pretty fun. Yeah. That she had fired an AK-47. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This this was. This was incredibly just it shocked the hell out of me that anybody that that this would even be a real a real dilemma for this professor who was like, I don't want to write her a recommendation letter now that I know she's into guns has nothing. It it kind of ties to the previous has nothing to do with whether or not they're good students. Right. Like that's so objectionable. Like the people, the people who get really upset about the sort of intolerant left. This is their poster child. This is like this idea that because this person has a position on guns, a legal position on guns that differs from their own, then um, it is morally defensible not to write them a a letter of recommendation on that basis. Like that really is – that shows that we need more diversity. That's like, again, sign me up, heterodox university, whatever the fuck that John Hype thing (laughs) is. You know, it's like there needs to be more political diversity on campuses if this is even something that can get – now, I – my guess is that this is probably a minority view and that most liberal academics condemn this, I, I hope. Yeah. But even Artem was like, this is a, you know, this is a tough case, right? I, um, I think that, uh, you know what, I just think that there's, if you're mildly conservative and you don't like social justice movements on campus, I think you're an asshole if you didn't write, if you didn't write a recommendation letter that only evaluated a student's performance and just kept silent about their politics that you didn't agree with. I, it goes both ways. Just yeah. be, just evaluate students. If a student loves a kind of movie or food that you love, like I think it would be that you don't love. I think it would be obvious that you wouldn't let that creep in. And it's like, don't. Yeah, it's frustrating. I, I can't. I can't even believe that this was a, a bona fide posed as a dilemma. 
It's the answer is so obvious to me. If you want to talk to them about their fucking guns, talk to them about their fucking guns. Don't don't say like, oh, what do I do? I can't write a letter. And, what is and, it? And a protest? They wrote it anonymously. This person wrote it yeah. anonymously. It's it's a pro- are you protesting this? You know, talk to them. Tell them. Tell them they're stupid if you think they're stupid. I don't know, man. What if um, a student thought Dances with Wolves deserved to beat Goodfellas <laughs> for Best Picture? Or that Forrest Gump deserved to be Pulp Fiction. <laughs> now it's more complicated. You know, all these things. There's no, there's no hard rule, right? <laughs> now, we're, now we're getting into objectively wrong. You know, this is no, no longer a matter. All right. What's your next one? Uh, this was just, it's sort of a quick one, but I just liked her attitude. This is from Maria de la Guardia. See how I pronounce that? Very nice. Hi, guys. Responding to episode number 80. I know this is somewhat odd. I'm Hispanic, an immigrant from Panama and female. When we were in college, my fellow Hispanic foreign students and I used to get questions from white Americans like, do you live in homes or trees? Do you eat with your hands? We used to laugh at their ignorance and inappropriateness, but we never took offense. In fact, we actually liked it. We all felt a bit smug and superior in comparison to Americans who are well-renowned for their ignorance of other cultures. We love to trade stories like these and laugh our butts off. For what it's worth, I do think there's an excess of sensitivity right now. If you constantly hear people say you should be outraged, offended, and traumatized, you're more likely to be so. It's hard to blame these kids who are really, really young and who only a few years previously were being treated as minors because they were. They're just being swayed by current campus culture. But it does seem like schools need to stop enabling and supporting this mentality. Just my two cents. So I thank you, Maria, for the email. I, I've i had mixed feelings about this because on the one hand, my parents were both Latin American immigrants. And, you know, there there was no lack of people sort of treating my dad, who has a heavily accented English um, with a bunch of stereotypes. And I used to laugh also because many of my friends who were American, they just, their parents had not, not even a touch of the amount of sort of experience. And, and I don't know, my dad had traveled the world by the time he had us as kids. Like he, he had, he was a, a human being who had way more experiences than many of the, the people who I knew. And so it was fun to just laugh inside and not take it personally. Um, the ignorance, though, every once in a while just would get to me. And I think, if anything, I agree that the probably the best way to deal with this is to be to introduce humor. I mean, it's funny, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't make fun of them. Right. <laughs> just make so fun I, back. I mean, but the issue is, do you issue some sort of administrative policy that makes questions like that expellable you know for yeah. the student who asks it or like i think like some people can shrug that off other people are going to be offended it's okay to be offended you're going to be offended sometimes uh, yeah. depending on the circumstances i mean i love her attitude i think it's great like i think that shows somebody who's self-confident and who <clears throat> sort of reacts to this i think in kind of the best the best way that maybe you can react to it, but not everybody is capable of doing that and not everybody is, but that doesn't mean that like if you're offended, it's a, it's a big gap to, well, let's institute some sweeping policy or make people attend diversity workshops or sensitivity workshops or things like that. That's the problem. Right. It points, it it points to something that I, I think maybe we haven't talked about explicitly, but the notion of offense is a subjective one. It is, 
my comments are offensive if, in fact, I have offended somebody. Um, and what I don't like is any sort of attempt at a top-down definition of what actually is offensive or what is right. to be judged as offensive. Um, I think people should... I think people have the right to express that they are offended and they have a right to do anything they want to do. I just don't think that, that we should be told what we ought to be offended by and what we ought not be offended by. And this is where we get into a lot of people sort of being offended for a third party. Like yes. you, you hear now every once in a while, somebody will just say, I find that offensive. And what they mean is that the person whom I imagine is the target of your joke. Like I am, I am offended for them. You know, it's touchy. I, I don't, I don't want to say that we shouldn't defend the downtrodden, but I just don't like the notion only of if they're offended in the, first yeah. Place. Yeah. I don't, I don't need anybody fighting, say my, my battles. If, if somebody is making fun of me um, or my group, I want to be, but I do, I am all for public discourse and for even, even real ramifications for what you what you choose to do or say. If you put on blackface for Halloween I and you get your ass beat, then that should have fucking known fucking better. The system worked. Yeah. <laughs> um, but That's I, better I than having like a, a, a workshop about why you shouldn't put on blackface. Just yeah. like beat the person's ass. Get yeah. back to basics. All right. So thanks, Maria. Um, there is a one last little plug on that issue. Louis C.K. was recently on the Bill Simmons podcast, and they talked about this issue. Who got fired from Grantland, right? Yeah, well, yeah. ESPN, yeah. Um, and he was running Grantland. The, um, this issue came up in regards to people complaining about something Louis C.K. did about trans people on Hor- Horace and Pete. And Bill Simmons gave him a like a question – to get him to be really mad at a little bit of the outrage on like Salon and Slate about the problematic ways in which Louis C.K. dealt with that issue. Mm-hmm. And Louis' response was, look, number one, I don't think these, you know, the what you see on the Internet is representative, representative of uh, the entire population, right? Like right. these people. But his second thing, he's like, let them write what they want. You like that's what happens when you put yourself out there. Like right. that is, people have a right uh, to respond, and people will respond, and that's just part of the deal. And right? without and so- them responding, I, I wouldn't change my views. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't exactly. be where I am right now if it weren't an actual human being telling me, "Hey, what you said hurt my feelings." Right, well, and this is why. Right. Yeah. So, um, like, there's nothing wrong with people reacting in a way that you personally don't think they should have reacted but like that's just that is part of the deal when you put yourself out there in any kind of public way including teaching including just be like talking to people then people are going to have a reaction so i do think the real issue is not that people get offended or people write some snarky sanctimonious blog post cuz that's fine they can do that right, right. like that's a that's a reaction that that people have um, the issue is when you try to get a institutionalized 
you know, especially when it comes to something that's very tricky and ambiguous. Like if you try to get some sort of institutionalized top down response, that's the issue, I think. Well, and so and I and I the reason I'm not fond of those solutions for this kind of problem. So I'm all for, you know, having legislated um, equal rights into the law. Right. I'm all for all of the legislation that had to happen. Um, I think the problem now is that the nature of prejudice is so different. Um, you, we often call it systemic or institutionalized racism. And what we're pointing to is that it's it's hard sometimes to find the agent who is, is has been at the cause of, right? No, it seems as if it's not an unreasonable tack to take where you say, well, if the problem is institutional racism, let's change our institutional regulations. And I, I don't think that that's necessarily the case. Like those, because of the murky nature of the causes for all of this, you know, whatever prejudice is still going on, they're going to be murky solutions. And, and I just don't, I I don't think that telling everybody how they should talk and how they shouldn't talk or legislating, that's just not changing people's characters. What we want is people to like actually open their mind up to the fact that, Hey, you know, trans people are human people who suffer through whatever they have to suffer through. And you'll learn that through a dialogue, not by being told how to write your email properly. Or a workshop. Right. Yeah. Bottom bottom up. That's probably the if I had to think of a slogan yeah. for my view of the world. Bottom up. <laughs> bottom up and also bottoms up. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, all right. Last one that I have is very serious, actually, and it's one that I'm grateful for the emailer to to send, and it, it's pretty personal, and it couldn't have been that easy. I did email and ask if it was okay if we talked about this on the air, and he said it was okay. Um, he had listened to our, our episodes on revenge and just felt the need after listening to it to relate this story. This is from a special agent, a police officer. Um, He says he's investigated many sexual assaults throughout his career, and one night his teenage daughter was at a party, and she was sexually assaulted by a couple of guys. Um, At first, she didn't want to report it for all the normal reasons, so the officer found out about it sometime later. Understandably, when he found out, his first thought was to go get his gun and find the guys who did that to his daughter to confront them. But he says his boss talked him down, talked him out of it. They did a normal police investigation that he wasn't a part of, and the the perpetrators were tried, convicted, and they got significant prison sentences that included being registered as, as, as sex offenders. So the officer ends the email, and I'll quote from the email here. He says, I'm glad I didn't find them, and I'm okay with how the system worked. I feel like if I would have found them, their lives would have been ruined because they would have been dead, and I would have been in prison. I'm glad I didn't exact revenge, and I'm satisfied their lives are ruined, and mine is still intact. And he says his daughter is doing better now. Then he says, I don't know why I felt compelled to share this with internet strangers, but your podcast struck a nerve and I felt motivated to tell you my personal story. 
Uh, and then he ends it, keep doing what you're doing. Thanks for your insight on the human mind. I do have an opinion on which one of you is funniest. Uh, yeah, so, uh, I mean, I just wanted to talk about this because this is something that I think is pretty, you know, this is something that has been characteristic of our podcast, talking about revenge and talking about it overall and feelings of revenge in a more positive way certainly than most academics this was really interesting and moving and it's something i think about a lot because i worry in my work on honor and revenge like i i really am conscious of trying to resist romanticizing it for this exact reason like, yeah and we have romanticized it in in the sense that we talk about it in a more positive light than is usually being talked about. And, and we sort of admittedly enjoy and recommend movies um, that clearly romanticize it. And so, so maybe it's just a, it's, it's a good co corrective call in just in terms of how we talk about it, that it's an ugly, like anytime you're talking about this thing that would happen that would cause you to seek revenge you're, we're already in a domain that just should not be romanticized, and we should say that from the get-go. Yeah. This is the ugliest part of human existence is, is when human beings do horrible things to each other. And I think that from my perspective, I kind of believe that there is not a clear line between the emotions that give rise to a desire for justice and the ones that give rise to a desire for revenge. I think that it's the same thing. Um, right. I think that... That that motivation to seek out justice can now in modern society take on the form of I hope the authorities capture them. I hope that they receive the appropriate sanctions. It just couldn't before. And, and I think though we do a disservice to the feelings of vengeance because without them, I don't know that we would have a, a desire for justice either. So to me, the, the, the take home message like, because I think the idea, like a desire for justice to me doesn't make sense without like the feelings of revenge. So to me, the feelings of revenge that he had, that's like what a dad probably ought to feel. Um, like, I want to kill these guys. The reason why I think he was probably right not to act on those feelings is for what he, the reasons he says, like it would have ruined my life. Yeah. Yeah, it would have ruined my life. It you know, they would have been dead rather than serve some prison time and be registered as sex offenders. And so, but you know, like I don't what I don't think, this is where I disagree with you is that the good thing about it is that it leads to this desire for justice because I think that's a just a you know, like that's that's too abstract. Um, so, no, like, I is, think like, I, the feelings I, are good. It's just also what is also really good is that he recognized that in this kind of case, where there is a system in place to to punish them without you getting um, your life ruined in any uh, you know for the rest of your life, like that's. That's probably, all things considered, the best choice. Right, but I think you misunderstood me. I'm, I'm making sort of an identity claim that there is no distinction between right. that emotion of desire for revenge and the desire for justice. The only oh, difference okay. 
The only yeah. difference in the two is now we have social structures that we can funnel that desire to get even, to bring the world, the universe back into balance. We have systems that presumably are in place to protect against things like cycles of violence, right? Were we not to have those, we would still have blood feuds. Right. And and that's why I think the structures that we've put into place for justice are a good solution to both maintaining this desire, this, you know, satisfying the desire that people have comeuppance for whatever bad things they've done, but also preventing it from getting out of control. When you think about what sentencing guidelines and, 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 um, all of sort of what the penal code says about how one ought to be punished. I think it's there to tamp down what people would do left to their own devices. You would, you know, you, we used to kill people who stole cattle. Much of what society does is try to keep, keep our general sort of super, super duper self-interested emotions in check by reminding us that we have to share the world. Yeah. What you said about, like, if we didn't have our feelings for revenge, then we wouldn't have our feelings for justice. I took that to mean that those two things were... No, they constitute. It's constitutive. (laughs) You like that? (laughs) Nice use of (laughs) constitutive. But um, where I would disagree with you is that our system is, like, effectively doing that. I do think in this case, it was the better alternative. I... Like, I think in general, our system is pretty fucked when it comes to this. It might be. I I think it's better than the blood feuds. It's probably better than the blood feuds. I also think there are cases where, like, revenge, where where the stakes are a little lower, might not be the worst thing in the world. Um, (laughs) But in this particular case, the stakes might were probably too high. But, like, this isn't a you-should-never-take-revenge case. In fact, we got a voicemail way back when we asked our listeners to give us moral dilemmas. Where I'm not so sure, like that, because the stakes were lower. There's a guy who left a message, and he was very disturbed by this. Of an ex, his ex girlfriend, who he'd stayed friends with, had a boyfriend that was uh, that was a disaster for her, and that probably killed their mutual dog. And it was driving him crazy that this guy is now walking around, like, having killed their dog. It was, like, their their joint dog. Uh, <laughs> and he was wondering, like, like, he wants to, like, try to beat him up. He wants to try to do something, and he didn't know what to do. And I remember listening to it, and I've, we can't play the audio, but, like, it was... Like, I remember thinking, like, I don't know what the fuck I would do in this situation. Like, because I don't know. Like, first of all, like, getting revenge, practically speaking, you know, like, clearly this the this emailer can do it. He's a cop. Like, he can like he has a service weapon. He can do it. Like, what would we right. do if we tried to get revenge on someone in any serious way? Like, there's a great movie called Blue Ruin by Jeremy Saulnier. He has a new movie out called Green Room that's also awesome. But it's about, like, if you or I tried to get revenge on somebody who killed our parents. like, yeah. And just, it's it's the opposite of romanticizing. Right. It's just, like, the bumbling, like, how bumbling right. and, like, clumsy we would be. I would call, the whole thing. call him and say, I don't have a very specific set of skills. 
yeah. you probably will never hear from me again. <laughs> right. But exactly. I'm going to just take a bat and try to walk around to see if I can okay. find you. That, that's literally how the <laughs> how the movie it's great. Like Blue Ruin uh is 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 like I feel comfortable in the con- in this context. It doesn't romanticize it. But like on the other hand, I totally get the frustration of it and there's no way to prove it. There's no law that's going to get this guy, right? This is like, you know, honor right. cultures there's no third party enforcement for this. So if this guy is going to suffer for it, it's got to be from you. Well, I, I mean, if there were evidence that he had killed the dog, but that's, there clearly that's illegal. Isn't. Right. Yeah. But but that's what bugs me about even right. Like if he's not sure, <laughs> then then he probably shouldn't seek out revenge on his own either. Right. I mean, you, you have to be pretty damn. Sounds convinced. like he was a bad guy anyway. So worst case <laughs> scenario, he's like, a- "I'm beating your ass." It might be for the dog, or it might be for some other shit. If it's for the dog, then you really have this coming. Yeah. If you if it's if you didn't hurt the dog in any way, then you only kind of have. It's it. like getting a wide spectrum antibiotic, and you're like, "Maybe I had syphilis, maybe not." But it's, let's take care of that too. <laughs> All right, you have the last one. Uh, no, that that was. Well, that's those a were, good one. Those were all mine. Those are good ones to end on. Yeah. So we'll be back next week with Jennifer Jackwit, where we're going to talk about shame. Um, We'd like to get a few more female e- emailers. I'm glad you read yours, but that was it was really slim pickings when it comes to uh, female emails. For, oh, female emails. Uh, <laughs> for the last... Uh, and I want to turn into one of those podcasts that only dudes listen to, so... Uh, well, the... the the burden is on us to say things that would attract that kind of audience. All right. I'll try to make Dave less sexist. Yeah. Dude. The next good week. luck. Good luck. Oh, I thought you said sexy. Sure. <laughs> sure. I'll be less sexist. Um, all right. Until next time.